Space Radio. Roger, restart. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Three, two, one. It's now time for The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson. Hey there, Spacers. Welcome back to another episode of The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson, and you are listening on iRock Space Radio. We're a uh, part of the iHeartRadio network. Tonight, today, whenever you're listening to us, uh, whatever part of the uh, solar cycle you are on, on this little spinning sphere of ours, our uh, guest is uh, a good friend and um, I, I must say a rock star in space, although he, he's very humble and he won't, he won't admit to that. But one of, uh, one of the uh, deeper thinkers that I know on, the, on this little sphere, Dr. Frank White. And uh, so a little background of Frank. Um, he's a magna cum laude, uh, graduate of Harvard, a uh, member of Phi Beta Kappa, Rhodes Scholar earned his uh, master's in philosophy at Oxford, you know, written several books. Um, of course, the big one that we all know uh, is The Overview Effect, Space Exploration and Human Evolution, which came out in 1987. I actually had the privilege of meeting Frank before that came out, when he was working with the National Commission on Space. Um, and uh, we've been good friends ever since. Um, I can't tell you how much uh, I admire you, Frank. I think you have brought a level of class and humility to the field. I think your vision, uh, you and I, we have little differences that aren't gigantic, but you're, you're just this, you know, you, you have a heart and a, and a gentility to you that I wish I could get. But I, I guess the best thing to do before we get into like a, a praise service or something here is just to dive into some history here. What inspired you initially to, to do the overview effect? I, before, before you answer, I should say the overview effect is centrally comprised of interviews with people who have actually flown in space. And the premise, and I'll let you straighten me out on that in a minute, is that there is the potential often realized by people who fly in space for a transformative experience in their own relationships to the universe themselves and the earth. So Frank, what got you started going down this path? Let me say, first of all, thanks for having me on, Rick, and the admiration is mutual. You have qualities I don't have, and that's the whole point, really. It's going to take a lot of different kinds of people to create the revolution, and that is what we're all about. So the admiration is definitely mutual, and <laughs> I think our our skill sets are complementary, though they're very different. It's important to note that we both got started in some ways, yes, with the National Commission on Space, but also with Gerard K. O'Neill and the Space Studies Institute. And Absolutely. I was inspired by Jerry's vision, which was so comprehensive of what I now call large-scale space migration. That's not what he called it, but Essentially, it was the idea that we could have very, very large numbers of human beings living off of planet Earth, and they didn't have to live on the moon or Mars. They could live in free space, as we call it, by building space communities with extraterrestrial materials. I've said this more than once, no O'Neill, no overview. <laughs> 
because I was really taken with that idea and I was thinking about it constantly. And it was an experience that led me and inspired me to work on the book, which was flying cross country on an airplane, looking at the earth and thinking about these ideas. And it was an epiphany. I realized that if somebody lived in an O'Neill community, they would always see the earth as a whole system. They would have an overview that we don't have living on the surface. They would experience the overview effect. That was the inspiration. Mm. And quite obviously, when the plane landed, I got my wits about me and I realized Right now, that idea is science fiction because there are no people living that way. And it occurred to me that I should talk to astronauts. That's the closest I could come. And the hypothesis changed when I started talking to them because they confirmed the original idea. Yes, they confirmed it. But there was also a more profound shift, which was because... They themselves were earth dwellers by birth. This experience was dramatic and shocking and for many of them life changing. And the way you described it is right. I mean, it was a change in awareness and identity and understanding of our place in the universe. And so that's really where it came from. And I pointed out jokingly, the overview effect is not a term that I came up with sitting in my study trying to figure out how to get tenure at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> it was an experience, and that's the whole point. The astronauts have an experience, and that's that's what I've been working on documenting for almost 40 years now. So, but, but, so basically, you were looking out the window of this aircraft uh, down at the ground and you were kind of like microdosing on, uh, you know, or, or sort of a gateway drug to the, uh, the overview effect, right? You're, yeah. you're having this idea and, and it, it does happen when you're flying, you look down and you just think how tiny everything is and yet how grand and how big it is. And then because you had the already, already had the O'Neillian context, of humanity expanding into space that led you to then put these two things together and you had this voila. Yeah. What was, I, I, I am curious to get into a little nitty gritty on this. When you reached out to the very first couple of astronauts, right? Nobody knew who Frank White was. Who's this guy? Okay. He's from Harvard. That's, that's good. But who's this guy calling me? He wants to talk. What what was that reaction like when you first talked to the first few astronauts? Well, I actually, I think the first astronauts I interviewed were NASA professional astronauts. I would actually have to look back at the book, but I believe that's how it began because in my youthful enthusiasm, I called NASA Public Affairs. I laid out the hypothesis and I said so clearly I need to interview all of the astronauts right away. <laughs> And there were quite a few of them in the 80s. And that was kind of a social science mentality. you got to have a large database. You've got to do various analyses of it. I was really thinking of a social science study. Oh, okay. And the public affairs guy thought it was kind of funny. 
And he said, you know, I could give you two interviews if you come to Houston on your own ticket. And I would be happy to do that. Then he suggested something that made it all work, which was that I should interview retired astronauts. And that is really when the answer to your question begins. Because I did go to Houston, I interviewed Jeff Hoffman, I interviewed Don Lynn. They were happy to be interviewed, and it was arranged. So that was pretty straightforward. Getting to the retired astronauts was more a matter of networking. You probably knew Brian O'Leary, who was he was selected for Apollo, and and then he retired or resigned, but he became very involved in Space Studies Institute. And he linked me up to Joe Allen. Mm -hmm. And I reached out to Joe probably with a letter back in the day, the ancient days of no internet, uh, no email. And I was at work. I actually had a freelance job with a public relations agency. And I was told, hey, Frank, there's a guy named Joe Allen on the phone for you. (laughs) And I was totally unprepared and totally freaked out, to be honest, nervous. And I got on and he was totally forthcoming. And he really gave me a lot of confidence that this was going to work because he answered my questions. He was very gracious. And he gave me the great quote for all the reasons pro and con for going to the moon. No one said we should do it to look back at the earth but that may in fact be the most important reason. That's a quote in my book. Now, Bill Anders said something really similar that's become quite well known, and it's, it's essentially the same idea. But that started me off, and then I started networking from there, and usually in the same way, I would ask someone who knew a retired astronaut, and they would arrange it. And I would say the vast majority of the astronauts were eager to talk. Um, Some were skeptical, you know, Mm -hmm. some of them felt like I've heard this before, you know, everybody thinks they can explain this experience, but it's really almost impossible to put it into words. And I doubt that this book will ever get written. And Like you said, nobody knew who I was or thought that I had the capability to do it. Honestly, halfway through writing the book, I started thinking the skeptical astronauts were probably right. (laughs) This is probably not possible. Mm. And another part of the story is that although I was planning this massive social science study, I was fortunate to get an advance from Houghton Mifflin to write a book with a deadline. And it was very clear I had to go with a very, very small sample size. And I was under deadline pressure. And I I had two different thoughts. One is, maybe they're right, I can't do it. And the other was, I have to do it. Now, another piece of the story, and I don't know if anybody has ever heard this, the contract called for 300 pages. Um, I submitted a first draft that was 800 pages. (laughs) (laughs) And the 
editor said, have you read your contract? And I said, yes. And he said, read it again. <laughs> <laughs> Those aren't the exact words, but he was very kind, but he was not about to publish what I wrote the first draft. Um, so I had to go back and like a surgeon, I had to cut every possible word. And I did. I think the first draft really had to be 500 pages, get it down to a 300 page book. My point being, the astronauts say again and again, this is ineffable. Words really won't do it justice. Videos don't do it justice. The only thing that fully conveys the experience is go there, be there, and have the experience. And yet, I believe it's been meaningful to at least try to convey it. And it's created a worldwide movement to bring the overview effect down to Earth, because we believe that if more uh, surface dwellers understood this phenomenon, we would be better stewards of the planet better crew members of the spaceship. There'd be a lot of benefits to having astronaut awareness become more uh, ubiquitous, I'd say. Well, let's, we're going to come back in a minute and talk about all of that part of it. What's, what's funny is interesting is that they're telling you it's hard to say. We can't, ex we can't explain it. And yet they give you 800 pages worth of explanation. <laughs> um, you know, but we can't, we can't explain it, but we got a lot to say. Well, look, we'll be right back. Um, you are listening to IROC Space Radio. My name is Rick Tomlinson. This is the Space Revolution. We are a part of the iHeart Radio Network, and our guest is the incredible Frank White, author of The Overview Effect, one of the seminal works in the uh, pantheon of space. Welcome back, spacers. This is the Space Revolution. I am Rick Tumlinson. You're listening to iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeartRadio network. My guest today is Frank White. Uh, if you were listening in the first segment, we were kind of looking at how he had pulled together the initial book, The Overview Effect. The premise of the book being, when you go to space and you look back at the Earth, we're going to get the other direction here in a, in a minute. We'll get to that part. But when you look back at the Earth, something happens. Something happens to you in your relationship to the planet, yourself, humanity. So Frank, as we were stepping away there for a moment, you were uh, beginning to talk about the um, expanding the ability for other people to experience the overview effect. Now, you and I and Dylan Taylor, who was, by the way, my first guest on the show, um, have this pact between us that our job, and we're working on different parts of it, is to enable humanity to break out in, into the, uh, the universe itself. And we're kind of taking different parts of it and working it in different ways. But your mission, I think, was defined from the moment you took that first action, in a sense. And that was to um, span the number of people and human beings and the ability of those people to express the experience of the overview effect. And you've been working on that for, for many, many years. Uh, we're finally starting to get there in the last few. But questions. I guess we'll, 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 we'll just kind of gradually open this up to more and more people. But when you came back, I know you did another edition later where you were talking to some of the private astronauts. And, you know, as you know, I signed up Dennis Tito. who was one of the, 
the first to, to go to the space station. Was there a difference between the private astronauts and those who were sent up as part of their job in the government when you were first talking to them? Do you find anything different? It's obviously one of the most important questions. Thank you for raising it. So the NASA astronauts and the Roscosmos astronauts, the ESA astronauts, very explicitly did not leave planet Earth to experience the overview effect. They went there to do other things. In the early days, they went there for national prestige. And we all know about the space race. And increasingly, as that diminished, they went to work. And it's important to realize that the people who go to the International Space Station today as NASA astronauts or as cosmonauts or from other space agencies, they work. They're doing a lot of experiments and they're, they are there with a job. Now, it turns out, in spite of all this, they go to the cupola which provides a beautiful view of planet Earth. As I've talked to them, they talk about how they go there as often as they can because it feels good and it renews them. And I happened on to a study some 15 years ago, I would say, by NASA that suggested Earth gazing was a positive psychological benefit for astronauts. It should not be kept away from them. Point being, the professionals went with something else in mind. And the experience is so powerful that they had it anyway. Mm. And that's important. The astronauts on their own begin to come back and talk about this, right? Mm. So that's how powerful it is. Now, as you know, new astronauts, I like to say, Rick, we're all members of the new astronaut corps. Mm -hmm. Because in theory, every one of us can go without being superhuman. New astronauts, I only have talked formally with seven. All of them went on Blue Origin, working on getting interviews with Virgin Galactic and others, and the Inspiration4 group, and so on. What is remarkable is, yeah, there is a difference, but not what we planned on or thought. I was told by people who thought they knew better, hey, there's no way you can experience the overview effect on a suborbital flight. Close to Earth, too short, too brief. I thank them for reading the book. <laughs> you know, I think you're right. And I had a formula. Have I told you about the formula? Mm, tell us. Yeah, this is my Einsteinian epiphany. The formula was I equal D times T plus O. Impact of the overview effect equal distance from the Earth times the time of the mission plus openness to the experience. And openness came from Edgar Mitchell, who told me that among his colleagues, the difference between an aha experience and a more mundane experience was openness to it. For I included openness. Distance time time seemed obvious. It's very clear if you go to the moon, that's going to be more powerful than orbit. And that was going to be I my next question, actually. But yeah, yeah I'd already pointed that out uh, in, in various ways. 
The surprise is when you talk to the Blue Origin people, they had profound experiences, at least the ones I've talked to. We've all seen, or most of us have seen, William Shatner emerge from the Blue Origin capsule. It was really quite remarkable. He had a profound experience, and I think it's because he was very open to it. I, I have to say, the um, watching him, my mind, because you have this guy who's a trained Shakespearean actor. Uh, some would consider him sort of a ham actor, over actor kind of guy, whatever. Uh, and he comes out and the purity of what pours out of him was completely different. It didn't, wasn't like he had sat down and said, oh, I'm going to say these things when I come out. It just gushed out of him and he started crying and Jeff hugged him. And yeah, I agree. It was, it was a, very amazing. The people I've interviewed did not have quite that experience. Their experiences were powerful. And I have Dylan Taylor courted as saying, if you want to know if you can experience the overview effect on a suborbital flight, I'm here to tell you yes. He put it in those terms. It's on YouTube. It's on Space Philosophy with Frank White. I just paraphrased what he said. But others, like uh, Katia Echezareta, Sarah Sabri, Glenn DeVries, and uh, Chris Bosshausen, and so on, all of them had very, very interesting experiences. And one of the things that was surprising, Chris talked about feeling drawn outward into the universe pulled outward into the universe. And he said, yes, I looked at the earth. I saw it was a fragile birthplace of humanity, something like that. He said, I knew I was going to see that. But what surprised me was this feeling of being drawn outward into the cosmos. And uh, Katya talked about not so much what happened on the flight, but flying home from Texas on an airplane looking out and seeing where what she had seen from space she burst into tears mm, wow. doesn't know why to this day sarah sabri talked about what i got out of it is there's no difference between earth and space i've said that again and again we are in space we've always been in space we'll always be in space we are in space but there's something in all of the interviews, there's something about the rapidity of the ascent on Blue Origin that seems to have a big impact. And you can see it in the Shatner interview. He talks about it like a sheet being ripped off when you're in bed. And just something about how fast it is that appears to have an impact on people. I'm eager to interview some Virgin Galactic astronauts and inspiration for and uh, subsequent astronauts to find out what it's like for them. But the point is, these astronauts are going for the experience. And with Space for Humanity, like with Pat and with Sarah Sabri, that's the whole point. That's why Space for Humanity sends them. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very exciting moment because. Virgin has announced they're getting ready to fly again. They've got a big backlog. Blue Origin is getting ready to go. Uh, then we have 
these stratospheric balloon companies getting ready. We're going to have a lot of people have some variation of the overview effect experience, and we're going to find out, are they going to come back and bring change here on Earth? That's the hope. That's why many of us, that's why the whole enterprise is very interesting. Yeah, I think that um, good that you did the astronauts first, because there's some level of what some people might call confirmation bias in the, in the sense that people that are paying to have the experience, paying so much and having worked so hard to have the experience, are of course going to be more biased towards having the experience, because otherwise they'd be denying their own rationale for doing yeah. it. But you've got this other database of astronauts, and I, I love what you were saying about the fact that they're just going to work. And yes, of course, they have a bias. They got into that field because they wanted to be astronauts and such. But I think that there is, from everything you've written, everything I've read, the interviews, seeing these people, it really is a thing. This isn't some made-up uh, situation. This isn't something that's, you know, just been stitched together and you're creating a name and then there's a thing that becomes that, right? It, there right. is a thing and you've named it. So we're seeing this, this, this transformation happen with these people. We're going to come back in a minute and we'll talk about that experience more out into the world. So we've gone from the astronauts to the people that are buying the ride, some of their experiences. And now how can we begin to create that dialogue, uh, the expression of these ideas? And what does that mean to humanity and, and the people on this little spaceship we call the Earth? And we'll be right back. So, spacers, stay tuned. This is Rick Tumlinson. We're on IROC Space Radio, part of the iHeartRadio network, and you are listening to the Space Revolution. We'll be right back. All right, spacers, you're back. And we are experiencing a conversation about the overview effect with uh, the man who put the name to it, Frank White. And uh, I heavily recommend you get a copy of his book, The Overview Effect. Watch the documentary, do anything you can to get closer to what we're talking about. And, and speaking of that, Frank, getting closer to this, obviously, at least for now, it's impossible for us to get large numbers of people out there to feel it, to see it, to, to appreciate it. You know, and we, and we know how critical it is, especially at this moment in time. You know, I love the fact, too, that one of the things we often hear is like for how thin the atmosphere is over the earth, that it's this tiny, tiny little thing, this little sheet, this whatever it is. It's one, you know, it's like a molecule thick, or the thin, thickness of a paper, I think was a piece of paper, somebody once said. And, and that's critical right now, given what we're dealing with, with the global warming, climate change, as some people call it, uh, and these kind of things. How important do you think it is that, that we get this out, that, that more people understand this? And, and how do you think we should best go about making that happen? I believe it's critically important. I, I'm concerned about how much time we have available to do it. I do think that the challenges we face here on planet Earth are significant. And I do think that a shift in consciousness is what we need. Otherwise, we're constantly working at the margins. And if you don't think the situation is urgent, it's probably because you're able to tune out some of the things that are being said 
uh, I hate to laugh, but I have been around long enough and you have been around long enough to have experienced a time when the idea of nuclear war was unthinkable, even though we had superpowers with nuclear weapons. The United States and Soviet Union came very close to nuclear war in 1962, but we now have a world leader openly saying, well, I may have to use nuclear weapons, you know, sorry, but not going to lose the war, so I might have to use these weapons. And that is a very serious claim. I think it's unlikely it will happen. But the same thing is true of climate change. Climate change is real. I actually co-authored a book on climate change with somebody who knows a lot more about it than I do. Climate change is real. And when people deny its reality, I think what they're really denying is the idea that humans have anything to do with it. However, any, any understanding of science will tell you that it's real and it can happen really, really quickly and it can have an enormous impact. So I could go on and on. We both know the challenges we face. However, at the same time, and this is very much like the 1960s, we had a lot of challenges, a lot of polarization. And yet at that time, there was a plan to go beyond Apollo and go to go to the moon permanently and move outward into the solar ecosystem. And it fell apart because American society could not sustain it. I'm concerned whether global society can sustain, number one, putting large numbers of people out there to have the experience. And secondly, can we find other ways to communicate it that may not require large numbers of people to leave the planet? But I do think the shift in consciousness where we think we're all in this together is normalized, is critical. Virtual reality is very promising. And there are a lot of people working on using virtual reality to communicate the overview effect. So I support that. And, you know, when I wrote the book in 1987 was the first time I had the idea that, hey, we need to have more people have the experience for the benefit of life on Earth. It was obvious then that the two ways to do it would be commercial spaceflight and some kind of simulation. And VR is it. So we have the means to do this with these two technologies. and it comes down to a matter of choice and willingness to do it. Uh, we could talk about what I think has to follow, because I think there is another step beyond the overview effect, which has to do with large-scale space migration. Yeah, let's do that. Let's, trans let's transition. In fact, yeah, you know, right now, and, and it'll be happening again, and, you know, whatever time you hear this, whatever, you know, we have this thing going on called the G7 of all the, a certain select group of industrialized leaders hanging out together, you know, and yes, it would be awesome if we could just throw all of them into a, a spaceship, send them up. Say, okay, guys, here's the thing, you know, here it is. Here's, here's the mother world. You're not taking care of her. Get this feeling, have this transformation. I go back down and enact the policies we need. And, and so here we are, Frank, at a moment in time where that isn't happening. You know, 
one of my darker hypotheses is one of the reasons we're not finding a lot of uh, signals out in the universe is that other species didn't make it through this kind of period. You know, they had our Congress that we have here in the U.S., you know, or our parliament, wherever you are. And they just didn't make it because they didn't react soon enough, strong enough, strongly enough, wipe themselves out in one form or the other. But let's say that we are able, you and I, Dylan and all these other folks that are working on trying to break us out, begin to get some traction in that. A lot of people will say to you, no, 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 no. You got to take care of this earth first, blah, blah, blah. You and I know the arguments in and out. We get them all the time. Rather than me giving an answer for that, since you're the guest, what is your answer when somebody says, oh, we have to take care of the earth first, Frank? My answer is that it's nonlinear. There's no first and second. There are a lot of things we can do to make life on earth better. And I support the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And actually, you know, and I think you know that Adriano Otino of Space Renaissance International is uh, working on space becoming another sustainable development goal. And I believe it would help to have the space enterprise be considered with the existing SDGs. What we should do is everything we can without leaving planet Earth to improve life here. However, if we go back to Jerry O'Neill, Many, many years ago, his vision was very much an environmental vision. His idea was if we could move large numbers of people and industry off the planet into this larger ecosystem, it would improve life on Earth because the carrying capacity of the Earth would be sustained by reducing population and uh, technological and industrial impact on the natural ecosystem. Therefore, I do not agree with the first, second, third linear idea because I doubt that it will work, first of all, probably not enough to confine ourselves to Earth and do what we can do. And secondly, there's really no good reason not to include large-scale space migration as part of taking care of the Earth. And, you know, I've said this to many people, and I'm probably preaching to the choir. We've got to flip the script. The script right now reads, Rick, you and Frank, you want to abandon the Earth. And, Rick, you've written about the Elysium effect. That's what's going to happen. All the rich people are going to leave and the earth is going to fall apart. And we can't have that. That can't be allowed. And I think we have to flip it to where we say, no, leaving is actually an act of love for the earth. I've, I've used the metaphor. We're like the kids in the basement. You know, mom loves us. She's glad we're here. She gave birth to us. But she'll also be happy when we go. <laughs> and uh, I think, mm -hmm. um, and and I don't want to insult any kids living in the basement. That's happened in my house. There's good reason to live in the basement until you're ready to go. But you know, staying here and and increasingly 
putting a strain on the carrying capacity of the planet is not a positive choice when we have another choice. So that's how I answer that. And I also realize, Rick, that for some people that is not convincing. And I've, I've just resigned myself to that. And so I do my best. And there are those who understand the argument. But what it really comes down to is, are we going to continue to stress this finite ecosystem? Or are we going to move out into a much larger ecosystem that is available to us? Um, yeah. Well, don't forget, Earth is part of the larger ecosystem. And again, we're not abandoning her. We are doing what we can to support her. Absolutely. Look, I um, when I when I do my talks and I'll, I'll pick on the college students in front of them, I um, I'll get that question, you know. Well, we we're not ready. We're not morally advanced enough. Look at how we treat each other. Look at how we treat the earth. Uh, we have to get a certain higher level and uh, fix the problems we have down here before we go out there. And my answer, and it took a long time for me to, to realize that this might work with some of them or at least get their attention is, you know, I'll look at them and I'll say, well, when did you move out of your house? Did you wait until you were fully mature or by moving out of your house, did you mature? Was it when you left that cradle, when you left that womb or your basement, and you went out there that you began to learn how to be a better human being. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's kind of the thing, you know, one of the, one of the ways I like to answer that question. And, and I think you're saying the same thing too. So we're heading out there into the universe. Um, what is it that, you know, we've got just a couple minutes in this section, but what is it that you feel is it that draws us out there? Why do we go? Well, you have said it very succinctly, so I'll quote you. We are here to go there. Mm -hmm. that I, believe, I believe there's good evidence that evolution has essentially designed us or predisposed us to go. And I did read a very prescient article many years ago that said 20% of the population has an exploration gene. Mm. And those people with it are predisposed actually not to space exploration, but to risk-taking. And it could go in the wrong direction, mm -hmm. although it could also be positive and not related to space. It could be medical research or something of that nature. However, I think there is really good evidence that we are drawn outward and we cannot fully explain it. Chris Bosshausen couldn't fully explain it. In my third book in the trilogy, I do ask, and that's called the Cosmo Hypothesis, I do ask, why is it that evolution and the universe have brought us to this point on this planet at this time? Is it possible? that we are destined to bring life, intelligence, and self-awareness to parts of the universe where it does not now exist. Absolutely. And that's one of the principles of Earthlight is um, yeah. that we are the mechanism by which the universe, you and I share this completely. We use slightly different words, but we mean exactly the same thing, that we're the mechanism by which the universe knows of itself. And, you know, regarding those, uh, 
that uh, risk-taking gene, you know, it can manifest in two ways. I'm sitting here in Texas, one way it manifests, which isn't so good, which is like, um, you know, boiled down to the statement of here, hold my beer, <laughs> you know, uh, watch this, you know, famous last words. And then the <laughs> other one is what's over that hill? What, what can we do better? How do we move into that, that zone of uncertainty that allows us to reach the next level of being who we can be? Yeah. So look, we're going to come back. Uh, uh, one last break here. Uh, I got, uh, Frank White, the author of The Overview Effect, here with me, uh, having a fun conversation. And for once, I get to sit back and largely listen, uh, which is great because Frank and I have these fun dialogues all the time. And you are listening to iRock Space Radio. We're part of the iHeartRadio Network. My name is Rick Tomlinson. And uh, I got Frank White, author of The Overview Effect. And we will be right back. All right, listeners, you are in the airlock with me, um, and we're in our little ship with Frank White, author of The Overview Effect, talking about Spaceship Earth, the transformation of being aware that you're in Spaceship Earth, on Spaceship Earth, part of Spaceship Earth. And um, speaking of Spaceship Earth, we are, you know, that little blue dot moving through the cosmos moving into this, moving through this amazing space. You said very early on, Frank, in our conversation today, you know, that we are, are already in space. We're part of this thing. Just before we left, we were talking about the idea of humanity, intelligence, sentience, maybe somebody else on another planet having the same conversation, uh, being the mechanism by which the universe knows of itself. I know that sounds like something we should be talking about after we've had a couple of bong hints or something, but um, you know, it's the middle of the day. You and I actually live in that place, so we don't need that. Tell me in, in your way of speaking, how important is that? Because that is such a massive concept. It's very hard to bring that down into like, you know, how, how does that affect somebody's life today, you know, living in a universe where that is true? Well, I think that we can analogize this sense of symbiosis with the universe to how our consciousness has evolved regarding the earth. Mm. That is to say, largely because of the overview effect, we have changed our attitude, or many of us have, changed our attitude toward the earth from seeing it as this vast open area that we could exploit and use. And we also saw ourselves as separate from the earth. And over time, that's changed. And I'm old enough to know and to have seen that change in consciousness that can probably be traced back to the famous Earthrise photo, where because of Apollo and because of space exploration, we saw ourselves in a different connection to our planet and to some extent to the universe. And it it is really a move from total exploitation to more of an attitude of collaboration and ex exploration. So I believe that this shift in consciousness and an understanding that we're part of this larger cosmos could begin to generate more cooperation, more collaboration, more understanding that we are on a spaceship and that we are the crew, metaphorically and literally. To me, the biggest payoff 
would be a realization of one thing astronauts tell me again and again. No matter how different that person next to you is from you, you are united by the common bond of being a human, being an astronaut on spaceship Earth, if you will. Because, you know, Rick, if you think about what is the biggest problem facing humanity today, it is that idea that because you're different from me, I can compete with you, I can exploit you, I can oppress you, I can even, I hate to say it, I can kill you. And it's not coming from the consciousness the astronauts have. And so that, I think, could be the most important payoff, even for people who never leave planet Earth. It's a shift in awareness. And as I said, space exploration has already done it with environmental awareness. And I hope it can continue to do that either through commercial spaceflight or virtual reality and change behavior right here on the surface. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I, we are one species. We you are know, one species and um, one crew, you know, one crew working together um, or we need to work together. And, it, you know, all the analogs, <laughs> you just... You know, we, we are the star, we're the crew of the enterprise, you know, and you're all these different kinds of people working together and at our highest way of being and our highest level of achieving what it means to be human. That's the truth. And, and we are able to go out and express that. You've done a lot of work in that area and, and made a huge contribution in that. And, and it's really important. But I, I um, want to bring it all the way back down now to some of our fun little wrap up questions and i almost hate to because we're having such a <laughs> pissy deep kind of uh conversation here and we're gonna have to have you back and we'll get more into the cosmo hypothesis and some of this All stuff right. um in your case it's very special i often will start this by saying you're flying over the moon in your case we're flying over the earth right thousands of kilometers an hour maybe you've got your dog with you and um we are uh you're looking out the window at at the the mother world passing below, uh, what would you be listening to if you had a choice? There there are a couple of things I would listen to that are are very very different in type. One is I'm a big fan of Beethoven, so if it were to be on the classical side, it would be Beethoven the fifth or the ninth or the sixth symphonies, and I'm I'm really not an expert on classical music. So I'm just expressing what I like. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but if it were on more of the popular music, it would be the Rolling Stones. <laughs> I'm a child of the 60s. And, you know, the Rolling Stones, for the most part, are the, the band that really recalls a time for me that was sort of like this time. It was a time of opening. It was a time of we can do anything. Anything can happen. We explored our inner worlds while the astronauts explored outer space. And when I listen to their music, it's not so much that it's great music. It's more that it brings me back to a time of both concern and fear of where we were going and optimism about where we could go. So that I might ver I might go back and forth between uh, the Rolling Stones and Beethoven. 
I love it. So one of them is sort of an accompaniment and the other one is putting you in a place in time. Yeah. Where the spirituality that you were feeling then and the spirituality you would be feeling flying above the earth, which by the way, is going to happen. Okay. I'm just saying it here on the show. Maybe by the time somebody hears this, it will have happened. I, I'm, I'm saying this without any evidence, but you are going to be on a Blue Origin flight at some point, Frank, if, if a lot of us have anything to do with it. Thank you. Um, if Jeff it. or anybody at Blue is hearing that, make it happen. Make it so. Um, I believe it. I do believe it. We are that generation. We saw we were around for Sputnik and we make it to go ourselves. What was your favorite science fiction book? You have one. I don't know if I can cite a book. I can certainly cite Isaac Asimov. Mm, okay. There are author. a lot of great authors, again, from my early days. And those authors inspired me, I think, mm -hmm. around the whole issue of, of space exploration and development. And I was honored to actually co-author two books with Isaac. And uh, one of those was Think About Space. It was for young people. And the other was March of the Millennia, which was about really human history in thousand-year chunks. And that was, that was a big deal for me. I'm pretty sure that the first science fiction book I ever read was, was written by him. And of all of those books, for some reason, what stands out is the iRobot books, Robots and Empire. And I think maybe because of the big picture, the the scope of it. So it would be Asimov, and I don't know if I can choose one book, but he would be my author. Totally fine, totally fine. Uh, same question in terms of film or TV. Was there one series, TV show, movie, anything like that that you recommend well, or you're excited right. about? Of course. <laughs> Not very original, but... I, I would say, again, the Apollo missions gave me a lot of hope during a very difficult time mm -hmm. uh, in American history. It was a difficult time to be in your 20s and believe things were going to improve. And as you know, the initial three-season Star Trek series uh, began around that same time. And once again, as we all know, it's a positive view of the future. And it includes space exploration as a positive aspect of that future. And then, of course, as far as a film, I guess it's got to be 2001 because it's so profound and so prescient in terms of what, what it showed, even right down to the possible problem or challenge of artificial intelligence. And as people have been getting really worried about chat GPT, I have heard HAL 9000 <laughs> again and again. I'm afraid I can't do that. I'm afraid I can't open the pod bay door. Right, right. Uh, so that was a very prescient film. Good, and, and thank you for reminding me of that part of it too. Um, yeah. that. For people who, who look at it now and they are like, well, you know, there's all this music. And first of all, you read the book first, then watch the movie. I would, I, that's the reverse of what I tell anybody else about any other movie. You know, the, uh, any other movie, the movie is a trailer for the book. 
right? And the book's got the depth. In this movie, read the book first so you understand what's going on when the music's playing. But at the time when that came out, there was nothing like it. Nobody had ever portrayed space in that way. This gets to the VR that you're talking about for the overview effect, making yeah. it real for people. So let's make it real for people who may be listening, who are interested in stepping up, stepping out, you know, being the ones who take that shot, take that chance, maybe have that 20% genetic material. What do you tell somebody who's listening, a young person, any, a person of any age, anywhere on the planet who may hear this, what would you suggest to them? What is your advice, Frank? The first thing I would say that's very practical is, of course, I'm the co-founder of the Human Space Program, and we would welcome anyone who's interested in getting involved in what we're doing. Our goal is a sustainable, ethical, and inclusive evolution of humanity into the solar ecosystem. And I would say beyond that, there are many other nonprofits like your organization, Rick, Earthlight, and others that you can plug into. You don't have to be a NASA astronaut to be involved in this great project that we're undertaking. So that would be the first thing. The second thing I would say is if you have a dream, if you have a passion, if you have a commitment to space exploration, don't give up. Don't ever give up. Rick, you and I both know we came from nowhere. I had no credentials to write that book. Uh, I was not an astronaut. I was not a professor. I didn't have a PhD and I still don't. And yet I had a dream. I had a vision. I had an epiphany. I thought it was important. You were in very much the same situation and you got some people to start listening to your your ideas and they caught on and you have achieved great success in furthering the revolution. And I do think for young people, for young people who have the exploration gene, don't don't use it for risk-taking that might create a problem for you. You know, one of the ways you can have an impact is to live a long life. Yes. So channel that gene into positive areas. And if you can live to be 70, you're probably going to have an impact. But it may take a while. That's important. And just never give up. Never, ever give up. Yep. Step away from the TikTok and put down the remote. You know, get out there, right. make something happen. Uh, Frank, you have made something happen. And um, it's been my honor to know you. You've been a huge inspiration. In my zealousness, it's great to be able to see you in your, your calm, hum humble way. Um, it helps me leaven myself because I get very passionate and fired up, as you know. And, um, I think you've, you've transformed. I've seen a lot of young people recently who are inspired by your message and by the who of you, the who of who you are. And that's the manifestation. Uh, our friend Loretta Hidalgo talks about space kind. You are a kind human being who believes in space. And I think that's a very powerful, powerful example for the rest of us. And uh, really appreciate you uh, coming on board today. All right, spacers. Thank you for tuning in. Go out and make things happen. You are the crew of this ship. 
take charge of it. We are out the airlock. You've been listening to the Space Revolution Podcast with Rick Tumlinson, a production of iRock Space Radio. Go to iRockSpaceRadio.com for more.